everyone, and welcome back to our podcast. And today we're continuing the mini series on DAOs. And of course, when we talk about DAOs, there's one crucial component, which is governance. And the moment you talk about DAO governance, the first uh, entity or project you think of is snapshots. So today we're so happy to welcome Nathan from Snapshot. Hi, Nathan. Hey there, it's so nice, so nice to be here, so nice to, to chat with you. I'm really excited for this conversation. All right. Yes, indeed, we have a lot to get to. So previously, we actually invited uh, Stefan from Gnosis, and we talked about the Gnosis Safe, as well as many of the concepts regarding DAO management. And today, I think we want to focus on governance. But uh, before that, you know, I always like to start with some general DAO discussion, right? So just as a warm-up, uh, you know, Nathan, I know you're really into democracy and DAOs, right? So I just want to get uh, your personal answer as to why are DAOs important to you? Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a, like, like this is one of the most interesting questions uh, around DAOs at the moment because it's such a fluid concept in many ways that why DAOs are important to me is can be very different as to why DAOs are very important for Gnosis and everyone is kind of building on this idea, but this idea is itself moving and you really realize how global the idea can become, I think, and the potential of DAOs comes from this reality. So for me, it's about two things. I think the way I would describe DAOs are first a coordination structure. It's a new type of coordination mechanism. And uh, many people think that the first DAOs, you know, the, the very first DAO is Bitcoin. In a way, it's a community governed by rule in code. And this community has several stakeholders. They have different roles between, you know, people who make transactions, people who mine Bitcoin, uh, you know, the people maintaining the code base. All of these people have different incentives that are very clearly ascribed in code. And they cooperate together towards a, a large goal. We, in general, though, we mostly think of DAOs as things that are powered up by Ethereum and by smart contracts in general. And these kind of modern DAOs is more what I what I'll be explaining and what I'll uh, what, what I'll you know spend a little bit more time on. And I think there's kind of three key concepts uh, that you know show that DAOs are you know, the, the structural advantages that DAOs have over traditional organizations. So the first is quite logical, is really this kind of horizontality. The fact that DAOs are networks of individuals rather than, you know, hierarchical structures, kind of pyramids that can kind of stifle innovation and make it so that the people at, at the bottom of the ladder don't uh, have the opportunity to have great ideas that change their organizations. So. In a DAO, the decision-making power, it, it belongs to the group. It doesn't have to be entirely democratic. It doesn't have to be one person, one vote. But we make sure that in DAOs, all decisions can be challenged, explained, and voted on by every member that desires to participate. Not every member in, in every case, but every member who wants to participate. The second advantage, and one I think is, is like really... You know, I don't want to exaggerate, but I, I would even say historical, is this idea that DAOs, because they're very often remote work only, kind of destroy geographical barriers. You know, you can be 
in Africa and learn everything you need to know about DAOs online, work in a DAO, join it, and the only thing that's going to matter is the quality of your work and how much you're contributing to DAO. And, and you will be financially compensated based on this rather than the place in the world you live in. Because at the moment, this is the greatest determinant to your personal wealth on a global basis. It's where you live. And I think DAOs have a unique you know, power to destroy this and to make sure it, it, it is an instrument of financial equality uh, and that I'm, uh, I'm very concerned about. And finally, those more democratic structures also bring a sort of direct democracy compared to the representative democracy that we see in society today. You know, when you think about your company, when you think about your country, even your community, you're always in a way represented by someone just because it makes it way easier to, you know, make decisions. If you've got to bring every stakeholder of your country together to vote on every decision, it can be very, you know, hard to organize, even though some countries manage uh, countries like Switzerland show that it is possible, but many countries decide to add a, add a you know, add a person between yourself and power. And I think DAOs, just technologically, can remove the need for that person. And that kind of brings me to my second point, which is I think DAOs are a toolbox. And by that, I mean, there's many different things you can do with your organization on the road to DAOification, you know, that help have this more horizontal fluid structure without actually having to commit fully to being a DAO. But I mean, you could, uh, as your community, have a Gnosis safe, since uh, this is the last interview, uh, interview you had. Imagine your company has a Gnosis safe, or maybe it's your church group that has a Gnosis safe, or your, you know, your book club that has a Gnosis safe, and together you decide which books you'd like to buy together. Maybe you're voting on Snapshot about this, and then the Gnosis safe will make the transaction to buy all these books and redistribute them. And your book club is in a DAO, but your book club is using DAO tools to be more transparent uh, and all of, uh, all of these things that I, I think are quite positive for any kind of human organization. Mm -hmm. Right, right. There's already so much to, to cover in our head <laughs> there, right? We, we went from like the open source nature and collaborative nature of uh, even Bitcoin as an OG DAO to the inclusive potential and finally to like a more horizontal flatter structure. Or should there be the representatives or should you be more directly involved? There's so much we want to talk about in this episode. Uh, but of course, I'd like to just pull this back as well. Right? And then for maybe for the viewers who are new to Snapshots, I think for, for people who are involved in DAOs, it's very obvious that like Snapshot is the most popular tool for people to vote uh, in DAOs, right? And that uses various assets as like your vote and uses various voting mechanisms. Um, but actually, I want to also go back to the, to the origins of, of Snapshot itself, right? From like idea to like now the one of the most popular DAO tools, right? Let's talk about the origin, right? How did it start, you know? And then I understand there's a pseudonymous founder, Fabian, as well. Uh, how did he get to uh, create Snapshot? How did you come into the picture? And, you know, where's, where's Snapshot today with like how many thousands of spaces and incredible progress since then along with the entire DAO space? Uh, yeah. Um... Yeah, indeed, that, that was a lot for an introduction, I agree. <laughs> so let, let's get back a little bit. So Snapshot, Snapshot, it's a voting framework. 
It's a platform that allows you to grab your whole community. You go together on Snapshot, you vote on something. And we'll go in a little bit more in detail later as to how we calculate voting power, how we make sure that uh, every decision is transparent. But that, that's the basic idea of Snapshot. It's an infrastructure tool for DAOs. Um, and the idea for Snapshot, it actually originated from Balancer, the DMM. Um, around summer 2020, Balancer was looking for a way to vote with tokens in liquidity pools. Because, you know, this is the base model of the AMM, uh, AMM and they didn't want, you know, token holders in liquidity pool to lose their governance rights in other projects. Because the, at, the, uh, you know, at the time, the only way to vote was to signal a vote with tokens in your wallet through the compound governance framework. So that was the, the main idea at the beginning. It was really about flexibility, making sure that you could both use your tokens in DeFi and use them to vote and retain voting power. And so this idea was kind of in the air. At Balancer, they were thinking about uh, off-chain governance uh, because this seemed to be one of the solutions for it. And Fabien uh, was, the, was the lead in that project. And Fabien was working on this idea for an off-chain voting system. And when the first product came out, actually quite quickly, it only took really uh, uh, two weeks to get the, the first instance, the very early instance you can imagine of Snapshot out. Uh, Fabien really thought, you know, this is a killer product. This is not just for Balancer, this is for, for anyone. And in a way, at the time, we already thought that gas fees were very high during the summer of 2020. This has not gone better. So it had both this uh, advantage of being free because you didn't have to process anything on chain. But at the same time, it was very flexible and allowed for, for these stake tokens or tokens that equity pools to be used. So Fabian went to the team at Balancer and asked, you know, can we develop this further? Can we work on this? And, and the Balancer team in really uh, beautiful showing, I have to say, of the, the DeFi ethos really supported him and told him, do your thing. We'll, we'll, we'll help you, we'll support you, uh, but go ahead and go develop this product that truly is going to, we think, help a lot of people. Um, and, it, and it was an interesting start. It was a, you know, Snapshot has always been free. Snapshot plans on being free forever. And so at the time, you had to really work with Gitcoin grants. Uh, and I think without the, the, this kind of love that we see in Web3 for public good funding and, and, you know, and the beautiful work done at Gitcoin, we wouldn't have a Snapshot today because you know, he, he needed to put food on the table at, at some point or another. And so for a long time, Gitcoin Grants supported Snapshot. And um, finally, we raised money, uh, you know, a, a last summer. And now we have a larger team uh, working with it. So for, for a long time, this, uh, Snapshot was really Fabian's work. And now we have a much bigger team, about 10 people. Um, himself, we started developing really uh, uh, in the, you know, in the crypto ecosystem uh, in 2015, 2016. And I came way later to Snapshot because um, my background is actually political philosophy. So I studied political philosophy and really focused on um, how we, do we take back the internet for ourselves? How, to, uh, how do we make sure that, um, you know, facing the Googles and Facebooks of the world, we, we retain some kind of human agency and we continue to be you know, masters of our own destiny on, 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 a, on a playground, a digital playground that's becoming 
more and more ubiquitous to our lives. And this led me really to crypto. I saw DeFi and I was mind blown by this idea that, okay, we're taking back control. We're inventing censorship resistant, immutable tools that allow us to take back our financial freedom. And I think DAOs will be a big tool to take back our you know, freedom of mind as well. And so I started off doing journalism in crypto because, you know, I was coming out of political philosophy. I thought, you know, I can write. I can probably write interesting things about this. And I got into journalism at Crypto Briefing. It was an incredibly rewarding experience. I, I really loved it. I wrote a lot about, you know, founders, deep dives in DeFi projects in any kind of new project that was creating something super interesting. I'd, uh, I'd asked to meet the founder, talk to him, have an interview, explain everything. And, you know, through all, all of this, I discovered Snapshot and, and I, it hit me that Snapshot has this, you know, uh, who knows what Snapshot is going to become, but I think it has an incredible potential to change how many, many, many organizations, whether crypto native or not, make decisions. So I jumped into Snapshot as soon as I could and uh, yeah, I've been here ever since. All right. Never look back. And I must say, your background and interests seem to align perfectly with the idea of DAOs. And I can see why, you know, you feel so at home at Snapshot, right? Uh, I want to pick up uh, the detail for the product itself. Like you said, you know, DAOs can be many things to many different people. And how you use it is, can be very flexible. So the idea of, of our Snapshot is being super flexible and also uh, to make it really easy, right? Because you mentioned that uh, the only way before to vote was to actually use your token in your wallet, you have to pay gas to signal that on-chain, uh, Snapchat can do it off-chain. So now let's go into the product itself so that uh, once people know what it is, then they can interpret and use it as they like, right? So uh, let's go to the basics first, right? So you mentioned it's the off-chain signing. So basically, uh, I don't need to sign a transaction on-chain, but off-chain. So for, you know, for the basics, how does that work? And you know, the, does that somehow uh, compromise in trade-offs, right? We would love to understand which parts are on-chain, which parts are off-chain. If it's off-chain, how do we know that it's like verified, secure? And which parts are actually, which parts of the stack as well uh, are actually centralized versus decentralized, right? Because while the whole governance uh, structure is decentralized, some of the infrastructure, uh, even parts of snapshot, like, you know, there's a fee, you know, the verification system, the domain notifications, all this uh, may be centralized, right? So just want to get like the sense of like the approach, the stack, right? The, and to me, it feels like a really practical kind of a way to make DAOs work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so, so I think to understand snapshot, you have to understand that how normal voting works on a blockchain. So normally, to vote on a blockchain, and this is something that was developed by the compound team, still called the compound governance. Uh, you to vote on chain, you've got to make a transaction. You, there's something that happens on chain, and you pay money to do it. And so with gas fees, th this is slightly problematic, but it is incredibly secure because to tamper with the vote, you'd have to tamper with the Ethereum blockchain itself. So this is an incredible advantage of voting on chain, really. On snapshot, what you're going to do is you're still going to do an action on chain, but it's not something of the same sort. Rather, you're going to sign a message instead of, you know, paying for gas fees for something to happen directly. You're going to sign a message assuring, you know, it's me who's who's voting and I can prove it. 
So what happens then is we store that, you know, whether it's a proposal or a vote, we store it on IPFS, which is a decentralized uh, storage system. Um, so that means that you know, it's much cheaper to store things on IPFS, but at the same time, you know, you lose this immutability uh, on, uh, as on a blockchain, this, inf uh, this information would be directly verified on chain. So we still have very solid security mechanics. Basically, what we do is when you vote, we give you a receipt. Snapshot gives you a receipt. And if this receipt isn't translated into the results of the vote, because everything about Snapshot is open source, you can check anything that happened, follow every vote. It's all accessible to anyone that wants to see it. So if you received a receipt from Snapshot that says, I voted on this and you don't see your vote, then you can come to Snapshot and say, what happened here? Like this hasn't happened, we're lucky enough, but it's more of, um, you know, right now we're talking a lot about optimistic rollups. This is kind of this source of optimistic censorship resistance. So it's not the same level of security, but at the same time, it allows us to give it for free and have this kind of flexibility that you wouldn't have uh, otherwise. So in general, I think this is kind of uh, the, the how Snapshot works. The calculation based on all, you know, we, we're going to pin all this, content on, uh, all, all this content on IPFS using Pinata, Arweave, um, uh, Fleek, uh, and we're going to use our database to index all those votes and proposal data and calculate the results that you're going to see in the Snapshot UI. So the snapshot security in a way works similarly to what you can expect from uh, something that will not put any information on chain but will still decentralize all the components and all the all the key parts that are so important to keeping the censorship resistance that uh, you can expect from something like snapshots this obviously is how it's working now uh, i think maybe later we're going to talk about snapshot x and there's going to be a big change in Snapshot X, but I don't want to jump the gun too early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's perfect. I think you covered exactly what uh, I wanted to go into there. Um, and so, so it's very interesting that you actually use the decentralized storage part, right? So, if I may just draw analogies, as if that, like you know, before this, every vote was every transaction, so it's really expensive. But now it's kind of like you batch together all of those, uh, all that data, all those signatures, and you just like start one shot uh, on, say, Arweave or on. Uh, Pinata or like the to PowerPoint on Fleek, right? So you kind of like uh, uh, aggregating the cost. And in fact, I would say Snapshot is probably bearing that cost of the storage uh, on behalf of the projects currently, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's it's much cheaper than what you could expect uh, on chain. But yeah, Snapshot is still uh, footing the bill for uh, for this at the moment. Right, right. But it's right. not yeah. it's not a cost that will put us under the. It's it's not. It's not the kind of cost that, uh, that, are, that is too significant for Snapshot to bear on its own at the moment. Right, right. It's, but yeah, who knows? When you, when you get to like a, yeah, to like a country, imagine if, a, you know, it was funny because uh, I don't know if you remember the Elon Musk vote on Twitter, where he asked like, do you want to vote on me selling my Tesla shares or not? So we were just kind of laughing uh, with the team uh, because we were thinking, Imagine this vote has happened on snapshot. I think everything would be broken by now. Would all be broke? It would be absolutely terrible. So, <laughs> yeah. 
Right, right. So to You're not ready for that type of scaling yet. Yeah, yeah. So to a certain extent, uh, because infrastructures run on some centralized parts, uh, so we're still dependent on, on snapshot, right, to, to pay for the storage and so on. Uh, but it, it works uh, enough, like well enough to, to store it securely, and then you have the receipt to verify in case anything goes wrong, right? Uh, and of course, you don't go about it alone. Uh, like you mentioned just now, we use decentralized storage right, with IPFS as a file format. So uh, similarly, Snapshot doesn't work in isolation, right? It works because it's in, in integration with so many different parts of the Web3 stack and Web3 ecosystem. So why don't we go there and talk about like the other partners and other parts of Snapshot that are that have, has its tendrils there. Right? So I understand ENS is an incredible one, and naturally with like Gnosis Safe that you know has that safe snap function. Uh, and now you're going to different chains, right? Multi-chains, and I understand recently there's a partnership, for example, with Hal for notifications. So uh, let's talk about that, right? Like the wider ecosystem for snapshots. Yeah, I think this is my favorite part about kind of the DAO tooling industry, if you can even call it that, because it's really, it's an incredible group of people who are each making their own, you know, specialized part of the stack. And then we're kind of all sharing it together because it makes a lot more sense. And you've kind of got this mentality that, you know, we're so early in the lives of DAOs that it's very easy actually to just work together, grow the pie for all of us. And there's not really a competition that will make it so that, I don't know, ENS would think, oh, but Snapshot, maybe they're my competitor. Maybe I should develop a voting system or, you know, we're not thinking we need a, a naming system. And, and it's really that, that that kind of makes a lot of sense. You know, if, uh, if I'm taking them like in order, like ENS is a very interesting one because quickly snapshot ran into problems of name squatting or verifying if people were who they said they were. For example, you know, who's telling me you can go on snapshot and create a space for Uniswap. And so now we can have member count and everything, but before you can make a, a, a snapshot Uniswap page and we couldn't tell you, you can't name it Uniswap, you know? So we just kind of relied on ENS to have this kind of register full of names make sure that you know spaces were who they said they were because that's the specialty of, of ENS verifying identity you know on the blockchain and that's uh, that is so, so it made a lot of sense to use ENS to make sure that all of our spaces were exactly who they said they were and if you think about Gnosis Safe like Gnosis Safe is really a, a, a probably um, one of the most significant partnerships uh, with Snapshot because it kind of works both ways. You can use your Gnosis Safe to vote on Snapshot. And so you can be a, a fund or you can be a big project that wants to use a multi-sig. All of these things, you can still vote on Snapshot, but at the same time, you can use Snapshot to direct your Gnosis Safe. So the way this works, it's called SafeSnap. The idea is you'll decide on, on a proposal and there will be two options. For example, uh, let's vote on who we're sending 100 USDC to, you or me, people will vote. And then through the reality.eth uh, oracle, your Gnosis safe will know which address to send the funds to. And there's no human interaction there. There's no, there's no trust assumption. There's very little trust assumption. There's really this idea that we're kind of building something that's going to make running a decentralized organization 
super smooth. And uh, that's, that's a big part of our partnership with uh, Agnostive. And in terms of multi-chain voting, um, well, there's kind of two parts about this. There's just the way that we support many, many different chains, uh, almost all EVM compatible chains. Kind of the, the idea there is simply, it's not that complicated as long as we have access to an archive node, as long as we're using off-chain voting, it's really not that complicated to add support for. Polygon or AVAX or, you know, or Arbitrum, it, it, all of these are actually quite easy to add as partners. And we want to make sure that their communities are able to use Snapshot uh, and, and, and benefit from it. But the other part of like the multi-chain strategy of Snapshot is also because we realized that people had AVE tokens on Ethereum, Polygon, maybe BSC. I, I, I don't know. You know, people had the same tokens on many different chains, and we wanted to make sure that they could vote with each of these tokens on their chain of preference, and still be counted in the same, you know, in the same vote, and that their you know, in, in, for Aave, the Aave token, I don't think Aave is on BSC actually, <laughs> uh, but basically that the Aave token would be worth the same thing no matter the chain it's on. Uh, so that, that was a very big part of, uh, of the logic there. And finally, I think you mentioned HAL. Uh, it's a very cool thing actually. I, I like HAL a lot. It's, it's basically notifications for blockchain things. So you can get notifications that you're about to get liquidated, but at the same time, you can get a notification that a proposal has started on Snapshot. And, you know, this is also super important. We, we could have tried to build our own notification system for Snapshot and every single project could try to build their own notification system. But why not embrace the Web3 ethos and all work with HAL and make sure that HAL is, is the notification and, you know, and they can perfect this segment of what they do. Just like Snapshot is very focused on perfecting the, the segment, the, the vertical of voting, uh, we have to recognize that if we want to make this right, we have to rely on the help of, of different partners that are building the different part of the technological stack. I love that, right? So now we start to see like the big picture, right? So from, you know, the identity of the project itself, uh, how the how it relates to certain assets, like it's signed with multi-sig, or it can be used to govern certain assets already, like immediately implemented. It's across different chains, and it's even to off-chain in terms of like centralized or web two uh, services where I can push notifications, right? So uh, everything we build in web three is by nature uh, this kind of like open source or collaborative, inclusive, right? So I can really see the it really inculcates the culture and the values that we want to push forward. Uh, and of course, now coming back to to Snapchat, right? so look at the big vision. Let's let's zoom in again. Uh, we we saw about the the option signing, uh, but I think what a lot of people also don't realize now uh, is then how truly flexible uh, Snapchat is. You you talked about the LP token voting strategies, but actually, I think a lot of people may not have even experienced or tried out like hundreds of strategies even i'm not sure whatever i'm overgoing here but at least tens of viable strategies and at least quite a few popular strategies right like approval quadratic rank choice involving nfts and so on so i would love to also understand that like kind of assets and what kind of voting mechanisms are available in snapshot and if you could just highlight some examples here so that we can see like come to life yeah absolutely i i, I definitely you know, I think, as you're saying, it's something that many of people 
don't know, and, and that's very, very useful way of using snapshots. So I, I think really flexibility is the key of, of snapshots past success and is going to continue to, to matter immensely in, uh, in, in making sure that everyone can tailor the snapshot experience to exactly his or her own needs. Um, so there's kind of two things. There's voting strategies and there's voting systems. So basically voting strategies are ways to calculate voting power. So a very easy way to calculate voting power would be one token, one vote. But you can also say 10 tokens, one vote, and one NFT, one vote, and add both together because maybe your project both has an NFT and a token. And you could also say, you know, one token on Ethereum, one vote, 10 token on Polygon of a different token is also equal to one vote. Basically, the idea is you can make any kind of strategy you want that gives any kind of voting power to whatever you want. And something that's even you know further down the line, but we, we, we're not using that yet, but this is something that could be used in, in the future, could even bring your own database. You can be a company and have shares and say, all right, I would like anyone in that database who has 15 shares to get 15 voting power. And, you know, Snapshot can accommodate that. It's actually not that hard to program. You do need a little bit of JavaScript experience to code the basics of your strategy. But really, uh, if you know the basics, it should be enough to, to retailer really it to your own uh, needs. And, you know, the reason why there's 200 strategies isn't really that there's 200 different people, uh, you, you know, different uh, basic strategies. It's rather simply, you know, your uh, swap and you want something exactly right for your staked system. Well, you're going to take one of the existing strategies that maybe has staked tokens and just adapt it a little bit, change the contract idea of the token, make sure that it's exactly just right for you. And the best part is you can really add many different strategies together. So yeah, sky's the limit on, on this kind of stuff. And then you've got the voting system. Uh, and the voting system is how then Snapshot calculates your voting power. So for example, you could say, you've got 10 tokens and one NFT, that's two votes. I've got uh, 10 NFTs, that's 10 votes. But we're going to use quadratic voting. So that means that your voting power is going to be the root square of 2. And my voting power is going to be the root square of 10. And I'm go not going to do math on a podcast. That sounds like a terrible idea. But basically, <laughs> it, it would allow you to, to uh, limit my influence compared to yours because I'm a bigger player than you are. That's, uh, oh, maybe we can come back on quadratic voting later because I think that's really interesting. But uh, yeah, an example that comes to mind, I, I, one that I, I find really incredible is uh, Decentraland. So Decentraland, they vote using their mana token. They vote using NFTs you can find in the Decentraland uh, metaverse. They vote using uh, land in Decentraland. Uh, I think there's different NFTs and each have multipliers. Some of the NFTs are worth more voting power than others. It, it's just incredible, you know, and, and it makes sense. You know, they're part of a metaverse, they're part of a, a, of a digital uh, community and, and not only the token should have voting power, they're, they're, they're the size of, uh, of their land, you know, all of this should uh, represent their involvement in the game and should be translated accurately into voting power. So that's kind of what we try to, to accomplish at Snapshot.
how, how far can we go with this, right? Can we do like, then kind of like, how long have I held this token or what kind of a behavior have I done? And have I, how many times has it been transferred or held in the same wallet, right? Never traded, you know, how, how do we push it to its limits? <laughs> that, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a cool question. I, I, I don't know, actually. I, there, there's, I think there's little, if you're ready to code it, it can probably be done. I, I don't know. It's it's interesting because it really relies on the way that snapshot goes and checks your voting power, how uh, snapshot goes and checks your on-chain balances, whether it's possible to do all of these uh, sort of, you know, seeing if the token has been transferred in the past and everything. Uh, I think this might be something that snapshot X is better at doing than snapshot in the long run, actually. But yeah, it, it's, you, you can go that far. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I wanted to say just before uh, something about this because I really like this idea that you know um, uh, you'd be rewarded for how long you spent in uh, you know in a space, how how many times you've voted in the past, you know how loyal you've been to to your community or something. Um, and I realized that uh, recently I kind of realized that there was this this really cool tool on Snapshot, which is a POAP plugin. So basically, you will receive a POAP if you vote. What you can do then is assign voting power to these POAPs and say, all right, you've got 10 sushi token. Well, now you've got also a POAP that shows you voted in the past, so you've got 11 voting power. Maybe the, the POAP is going to be worth one sushi worth of, uh, of voting power. And yeah, I think that's a cool idea. I'd love to see that implemented in some communities because uh, that's a great way of uh, uh, of rewarding the loyalty of people who've been uh, kind of following you uh, for long and also perhaps are awesome so <laughs> could I it's just a cool also thing. Um, just throw in some ideas like what if could I, could I also recognize other projects um, tokens and, and what have they done with other projects in like the voting power of like my project as well right? I want to know like okay maybe this guy's credible or this person owns like you know significant like, skin in game in some other asset or I want to exclude like hey they own this competitor asset I want to give them less say right and maybe they have uh, negative uh, adverse <laughs> interest I know, but it can somehow... Uh, <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, I think it's going to happen more and more. You're absolutely right. This is something that's going to happen more and more because what do you do if if you're a new protocol and you're, let's say, a new AMM and you want to get people to join your AMM and trade on your AMM instead? You can do some kind of vampire attack using token or whatever, but in terms of governance, if you want to take the most you know, the most active members of governance that are the most prized member of your community. I think if they're very active, if they uh, participate a lot in the life of your community and you kind of want to vampire attack them from that governance to yours, well, a good way could be to give them voting power based on past votes in something else. It kind of makes me think of a gearbox protocol, uh, which uh, launched very recently and said, well, basically we're going to look at whoever voted in these particular spaces that are very uh, active DeFi protocols, small communities of, of people who are kind of well known for being very active in the space. And these people, we're going to give them special voting power in Gearbox's life because we kind of want to get all these people interested and have skin in the game very easily. In a way that doesn't cost the Gearbox team any money. It's not like they have to give them token or dilute their token to, to get them to, to join. They can simply say, if you want, we recognize your good actions in, in in other governance, and we'd love you to to join us. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to do there, as you're saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, this is cross pollination. 
that goes on. And uh, you, you kind of like mentioned snapshot X as well that actually brings in even more uh, flexibility or bringing in some sort of like uh, real world applications with like databases, right? Uh, shall we now elaborate on that? Yeah, for sure. So basically, so snapshot X is um, a product that will happen concurrently with snapshot. It will not be for everyone in a way, like snapshot X is going to be very useful for some protocols, less useful for others. And the idea is what we're going to do is, as I was explaining in, in the beginning, snapshot works off chain. Well, snapshot X is going to work on chain. But we're going to go on chain, not on layer one, which would still cost way too much money. We're going to go on chain on layer two. So basically, Snapshot X is going to be powered by Starknet, uh, the layer two ZK rollup developed by the Starkware team. And we're working very close with them uh, at the same time uh, developing uh, Snapshot X. It's quite incredible. It's really uh, in incredible work they're doing in terms of uh, scaling Ethereum. And the way it's going to work is you'll still use the Snapshot you'll still be signing messages it will still be free for you as an individual your DAO will have to foot the bill of, of you know there will be some gas costs on Starknet and your DAO will have to basically fund an account that funds individual voters because for us it's very important that vote stay free for everyone we, we don't want to I think it's a key reason why uh, we, we've seen an, an uptick in, in, in governance participation and we want to keep it this way. Uh, so basically what's going to happen is Snapshot X will use Starknet to do all the computation and all the indexing that I was telling you happens either in the database or on IPFS. All of this will be on Starknet and then Starknet is going to relay every, you know, maybe at the beginning it's every hour by in a few in a few months or year, it's every block that will relay information on layer one and allow for trustless execution on layer one. So it's a different architecture that allows Snapshot X to do stuff that simply wasn't possible using Snapshot at the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it actually has a better security guarantees because of uh, the zk proofs. Uh, and also publishing it on chain from there, uh, and uh, like you like you mentioned, actually has uh, does it also introduce kind of more flexibility? Then could you like use like more computations because it's trusted, like rather than relying on on snapshot itself? So that's an interesting question. Uh, at the beginning, we'll only support um, ERC twenty, and soon after, snapshot X will be able to look at NFTs eventually multi-chain, everything that Snapshot does, well, maybe not everything, but a good part of what Snapshot does and the current use cases will still be re re replicable on Snapshot X, but there's some you know, use cases that are only possible on Snapshot because Snapshot is off-chain in the first place. Right, right, right. Because Snapshot X will be on-chain, it will only be able to look at things in a blockchain. So if there's no on-chain proof that you own something, but you do own it, you won't be able to derive voting power from it on Snapshot X because there will be no place for human input, really. Snapshot X will be entirely censorship resistant and have no trust assumptions, really, whatsoever. So there won't really be a way to add something manually, if you see what I mean. 
So right. in terms of flexibility, I think you lose a little bit in, uh, in Snapshot X. But in exchange, you get this better security and at the same time, trustless execution that, you know, we were talking about trustless execution in the context of SafeSnap, but SafeSnap still uses an Oracle to relay, you know, if you're going from off-chain to on-chain, there's no choice. You'll always have to use an Oracle that translates off-chain realities to on-chain realities. Here, everything will be on-chain, so there will not be any need for, for, um, for that type of Oracle, and we can really, uh, you know, and this Oracle is obviously secure, but at the same time, if you want something that's entirely censorship resistant, then you have to go in this direction. Right, right. Okay. So on the spectrum where like purely on-chain voting, like a, a compound governance module would be like the most mm -hmm. trusted, but also very expensive and yeah. not very flexible. Uh, and then the snapshot yeah. was all the way on the other side where because off-chain you can do anything you like. <laughs> and this kind of like yeah. brings it slightly in the middle. And perhaps that is, uh, allows you to create that sweet spot where you will be comfortable with it, you know, having like tangible outputs and executing like certain asset transfers, important decisions, mm -hmm. uh, but still have enough flexibility and enough kind of like security guarantees uh, to then... Yeah, uh, to be honest, uh, uh, you know, this is definitely a question for someone who's uh, more well-versed in, in ZK rollups than I am. Uh, but I think there's no trust compromise. Uh, yeah, there, there's no security compromise between compound governor and... Uh, in the future snapshot X, it will be the same standard of security as you know zk proofs rely on the uh, on the security of ethereum and, and provide a hundred percent of i think actually i've heard the founder of starkware say that a hundred percent is a bad number to give but allows almost a hundred percent of the security guarantees of uh, ethereum uh, for Snap, uh, you know, so Snapshot X will benefit from really the same security as something like Compound Governor. Right, right. Well, uh, well, we need to have a, another full episode to go into the ZK things. <laughs> we'll we'll yeah. do another time, or perhaps with uh, another person. Now, okay, we've, we've talked a lot about Snapshot, right? You know, all the way from like the whole ecosystem to all the features and all the advanced mm -hmm. stuff that you can do as well. Uh, I, I love to now, you know, you know, close that the academic book and and I'll just talk about DAOs as a whole, right? I think that's that's what you're really interested in as well. And I think, you know, also tying it to the, the value or impact of Snapshot, right? Which is like, we talked a lot about flexibility and having all these different strategies, recognizing these different assets. Uh, you know, why is, is that important? Like, why is having all these, like, diversity in recognizing types of votes important, right? And uh, part of the answer could be that, uh, DAOs are, in general, an experimentation on governance, an experimentation on human coordination, right? Around, like, who should vote, how to vote, and then like, who matters more, or what kind of actions matter more, like, what kind of history or kind of uh, people matter more uh, in certain governance mechanisms, and, and how is it really human coordination? So I, I love to again, then pick your brain, right? Then, you know, what do you think about some of these mechanisms, right? Which experiments stood out to you? Right? Or which direction do you think it should go like in your mind? I know you were not able to take a stance uh, as Snapshot, right? Because you know you have to be very neutral as a infrastructure provider. But now that we're just talking about DAOs in general, we'd love to hear your personal thoughts here. Yeah, the, uh, it's an interesting question. I think there's many questions in that question. So. <laughs> yeah, <it's> so, <laughs> no, no, but uh, uh, it's very interesting. I, I think so first about decentralized governance. So what, what's the point? What are we really trying to achieve? In decentralized governance, we want both 
the efficiency of centralized governance because there's still this idea going around that, uh, and I, I, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna give you a definitive, this is wrong or this is right, but there's this idea that if you have a boss or if you have a leader, it's gonna be more efficient than if there's none. And I think that's true as long as the community doesn't have the right tooling. If the community has the right tooling to take the right decisions, then they'll go actually much further together than they, they would go uh, you know, by themselves or with, with a direct leader. So what does that mean? That means that there, there's, a, there's a fundamental difference between the assumption that everyone should vote and the assumption that everyone should be able to vote. And the, the difference is we actually don't need everyone to vote on everything. We need everyone to be able to manifest their, 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 their opinion on everything, but they don't need to vote on everything. So sacrificing efficiency for decentralization only works if it makes sense to the people who are building this organization that, that has to be both efficient and decentralized. So. I'm going to give an example because this was quite theoretical. Um, when ENS launched, you, everyone who claimed the ENS airdrop had to ratify a constitution that limits what the ENS community as a whole can do. And when you make a constitution, and that's why many countries have constitution, the executive branch of the, uh, of the country can make certain decisions without consulting with the people as a whole and still have democratic legitimacy behind their actions because people agreed with the constitution many you know a constitution should be many you know small items and what the government is allowed to and not to do into you know when when these situations happened so basically what ENS did is we're going to have a constitution and then we're going to have delegates and you had to choose a delegate as well and your delegate, you could choose him or her on the basis of, I know him, I know her, I respect her work, uh, I think he's funny on Twitter, that doesn't matter. You're, you're able to choose whatever delegate you want to represent you to kind of speed up the process of governance and make sure that you, know, you have the right type of democratic legitimacy in your decision and, in, and people that are actively interested in pushing the the protocol forward while still representing token holders. And that's basically the advantage of democratic, uh, of representative democracies on direct democracies. It's just, it's a bit faster. There's less people to keep in the loop. And if as a voter you disagree, well, the cool part about the ENS, you know, delegation mechanism is you can simply say, well, I'm not delegating my tokens to this or that person anymore. I'm, I'm going to delegate to someone else. And it's based on your own you know, appraisal of what's going well, what's not going so well. So all of these experiments, well, I think the key thing in decentralized governance is we're still super early. And it's hard to say like what's going to work, what's not going to work. But the cool thing is through the cryptographic tools like tokens, uh, or, or like NFTs or many of these other things, we can try out really cool stuff. And this is the most important part. It's really just trying out different modes of decentralized governance and seeing what sticks. 
so okay this was the first part of your question and then you maybe had like a second part uh which was another you know more tangible example of a, a cool new voting mechanism and i think i'd like to come back on quadratic voting that i kind of touched on earlier and this idea that so if you've got 10 tokens you know if you've got 100 tokens your voting power will be uh 10 because root square of 100 and if you've got 10,000 tokens, well, your voting power will be 100, root square of 10,000. So kind of reducing the impact on, of whales on you know, the democratic process and making sure that even smaller token holders still have a voice. Well, this is a, a very interesting experiment because in blockchain, we have an issue called civil resistance. And it's this idea that, well, but what keeps you from making 10 wallets with a thousand token rather than one with 10,000, because you'll have way more voting power if you use 10 wallets of, uh, of 1,000 token versus one of 10,000. And um, this is an issue that's been going on for a while. We, we keep thinking, well, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to make sure that individuals are individuals on the blockchain? Um, and this is a, a field I'm super excited about because many different projects are working on it. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Orange Protocol, Zorro, uh, Sismo, um, Bright Idea, Proof of Humanity. These are all projects that are working on making sure not of who you are on a blockchain, but rather making sure you are a single person, making sure there is one individual behind that account that's verifiable. And then we don't have to know his or her name, but we simply can know that he or her is, uh, uh, he or she is, uh, is unique. And, you know, when I see kind of the state of all of these uh, governance experiments, uh, I think it's, it's amazing. I think we're, we're really right in the middle of figuring out what decentralized governance can look like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. I think I love that you brought up the implicit assumption that everybody has that, like, basically you need to rely on the small group of people to, to make things happen. Uh, but actually, you don't necessarily have to, right? Maybe it's about giving you an option. Or even if you rely on those people, uh, it's important for them to keep that option to replace those people uh, pretty regularly and then remind them to wield that power, right? Uh, at the same time, I think a lot of what we're talking about is like the voting mechanisms, right? Like making sure that they're real people, uh, you know, reducing the, the disproportionate power of the wealthy or, or those who have uh, been early maybe, right? And making sure it's more equitable. At the same time, uh, I think on the flip side, there's also the incentive design, right? Like, why do people want to vote? And I think here we, we have been kind of like operating perhaps on the assumption that people want to express their opinions. And uh, I'm not, like, in, I think in the real world, like, people not, are not too sure whether that's completely true as well. And I don't know how, which part of it is because of uh, before this, we didn't have a chance, right? A lot of us like work in organizations that are highly hierarchical, you have to basically listen, right? Or even societies, they are pretty hierarchical. Governments, they are more hierarchical. Uh, or like you, you use technological platforms that don't give you that power to decide for yourself, right? Often, right? They really dictate for you a lot of the things, right? So it could be a product of, um, of being in this environment. But it could also be, right? Could, could we make that assumption that people don't necessarily want to express their opinions or don't often express their opinions about many things. Uh, either they don't know enough or 
they don't care enough or they just don't want to take the time to do it. Uh, and so there sounds like, could, do we need other types of incentives? Is it more of a, a moral, philosophical, cultural problem rather than the voting mechanisms themselves, right? What do you think? That's, that's super interesting. That's a super interesting uh, way of thinking about it because obviously you'll never get 100% participation. That, that just, it, you'd have to force some people to participate if you wanted 100% participation because obviously some people do not care enough. So what you can work on as a DAO, as an online community, as a, any kind of, uh, of decentralized uh, organization is there's kind of two levers, let's say. There's the cost lever and then there's the impact lever. And so the cost one is pretty much what, what Snapshot works on. Snapshot is busy figuring out how to reduce cost as much as possible, uh, making it free, making it flexible. Uh, you know, we've added a timeline feature that allows you to kind of see all of the latest proposals so you can really scan through them and vote as quickly as you'd, as you'd like because you have other things in your life than voting in all of the decentralized projects you're interested in. And, you know, you can't expect people to show up if, if it's a lot of work after, you know, they have their own personal lives. And I can imagine that they don't have that much time to, to give to that. So, but we can, you know, we can still do a lot more. There's still a lot more things that we can do to make the voting experience as, you know, as cheap as possible, I guess, is, is, the, is the way you could see it. But cheap in terms of information, uh, you know, that's where HAL comes in. Um, simply uh, like notifications that tell you, you know, there's a new proposal coming up that you don't have to check it every day. You can simply see when there's a new one coming up. This is a way we reduce costs, cost of staying informed, but even like kind of the technological costs. And um, we're, we're actually working uh, uh, we haven't announced it officially yet, but I, I guess this is as good a place as any. We're working on a mobile app that should come out around Q2 2022. Uh, and the, the idea is also to really make your access to snapshots as easy as possible and your access to decentralized governance in general as easy as possible. So that's the first part, can reduce cost. The other part is you can improve impact. If you let your community vote on decisions that really don't matter that much or are, are rather boring, you will see less participation than otherwise. And, you know, I'm kind of thinking, I always have this, this thought in mind. I think it was one of the most powerful pictures I've seen in, in my life. It was a line of, I would say, two or three entire blocks of Americans going to vote. And it was like middle of November. I think that's when the elections happened. It was middle of November. And I think if I remember correctly, it was either, you know, it was voters in a red state that had been red for 50 years. And so probably there wouldn't even be, you know, a change. It will still continue to be a Republican state. And they had to queue, I think, if I remember correctly, for like 10 hours to go and cast their votes. And it's incredible because the cost is crazy high. You'd have to take a day off because I think the votes are during the week. And then you'd have to stand around in, in the freezing <laughs> November of, of I, I don't know which American city to go and vote for, you know, in the end, have a, a large chance that your vote has no impact. But simply that the impact of 
electing the president of your country is so high that you're ready to make this personal sacrifice and you're ready to incur the costs. And when I see that, I think cost is the more important one of the two. Uh, sorry, impact is the most important one of the two. It doesn't matter the cost in the end. If your impact is really high, then you'll, you'll go and vote and you'll go and participate in, the, in, in, in your decentralized governance or you know, in any kind of democracy. So obviously some people are not interested in voting, but at the same time, you've got to give them something interesting to vote for, for them to go and vote. And that's kind of one way you can touch the impact level. And the other way, I think, is also just kind of rewarding people who take part in governance. I've had uh, tons of ideas around this uh, that go from like diluting the members that don't vote by offering tokens to the members that vote. Uh, you know, I, there was the pull-up plugin I was talking about before, which I think is really, really fun. You know, it's it's free to set up, it's free to distribute. It's just a really cool way of, of showing your enthusiasm to to your community, and and all of these they can be they can be added to help participation. But in the end, if you want high participation, give your voters vote that matters. That's the that's the key point. And then the last part is also like there's something to keep in mind as well, which is there's kind of like a <laughs> maybe I, I don't know the right term, but let's say like original sin of governance tokens. And the original sin of governance token is that they're both voting power and money. And if I give you one uni token, are you going to see it as, I don't know where the market is, but I don't know, $20? Or are you going to see it as one vote in the Uniswap DAO? And for a lot of people, you can blame people for seeing it as $20 in certain cases. and that's very understandable, especially when you see how many percent of, uh, of tokens are, you know, held on centralized exchange as well. These are all tokens that will never be able to participate in, the, in, in governance. So in terms of decentralized governance, set your sites to something realistic because you'll never get 100% and then give your community good reasons to, to show up. And then I think you'll get good participation. Yeah, as you mentioned, so it's the cost and the impact. And like you said, you know, you can add some inten incentives, you can reduce the cost, but really you want people to vote on what matters, right? And in a very practical setting as well, um, like you mentioned just now, like there are often very many small decisions that need to be made, right? For, you know, for a project to move forward, you know, for the product to be launched, right? like they're just small decisions that need to be executed. And um, for those, does it make sense then to perhaps delegate uh, to some sort of people? And then we kind of go back to that kind of uh, representative uh, democracy model, right? Or maybe we need some sort of a hybrid. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that and how it has worked out for the DAOs that you've seen. Yeah, it's definitely, so, so delegation is very interesting because it, it can be at the same time a cheap cop-out. You can say, oh, I'm just going to delegate, not care about governance. It's fine. And I trust that person is going to make the right decisions anyway. And you can be blamed for that. I think it's, it's extremely okay to consider your participation in governance as superfluous to, to your own time or involvement in the project. And that's fine. I, I can totally understand that. What needs to be done, though, for delegation to work well is give the right kind of information as a project 
so that the people that are interested in your governance stay around. You can do delegation because nobody knows what's going on anyway. You can do delegation on a, on a very clear, you know, if you communicate well what the big decisions are going to be about in a way that people will be able to choose a delegate well, that's more than fine. Because then the delegate is going to be able to, you know, you, you know why you get delegated into that person. You're delegating to someone in the ENS ecosystem because you strongly believe that name squatters should be publicly flayed. And, you know, if that person agrees with, with, with your views, then you delegate to that person and it's clear, it's all above board. I think where delegation kind of hurts is, and sometimes you can see it in, in our representative democracies, when you've got like layers and layers of bureaucratic administration and, and you know, party systems and everything, and it gets super hard to see really, what am I voting for? I'm voting for, you know, I, I'm, I'm from uh, Belgium. Belgium is probably one of the most complicated, uh, uh, let's say, complicated systems in the world in terms of, uh, of democracy. We have 12 parties, they make coalitions, and, and, and we're a country of 10 million people. And I think we have seven parliaments. It's, it's something very crazy like this. And you're underneath all these layers of governance, it's getting harder and harder for me to go to the polls and really, in clear conscience, think, I know what I'm doing here. I'm voting for the right person. And then you end up voting for something that kind of matches your ideals, and then you end up with political apathy and people that just don't want to go to vote anymore because this is way too complex and there's no tangible reason for me to go and vote for this person instead of this person because I, I generally don't know how that would affect uh, my community, in my case, my country. So this is the goal of delegation. Delegation has to be, you know, governance has to be clear for delegation to make sense. Mm. So it's almost like, uh, like the political people who will run for office based on particular uh, missions or platforms or like policies that they want to champion, right? You kind of need to know what they are for. Uh, and therefore, you, you can kind of say, okay, identify with this person. I think we are more aligned in our values. They will vote how I would have voted if I were them uh, and spending that time reading those proposals. Or if I had yeah. the, the capacity to even understand those proposals, like my values are aligned, right? Uh, in a way. So, uh, so do you think that that kind of uh, works so as long as um, it's communicated well, but should we still have like a referendum system, right, for like some of the most important votes, right, where like maybe the most important ones that affect everyone, you vote directly, uh, issue by issue, uh, but then the more kind of like generalized day-to-day uh, -day stuff, then you, can, you might delegate that. But that also means that the delegates become uh, less important, right, because they only manage the small decisions. They don't really have the decision-making power. Uh, right, you know, does that hybrid then make sense, or um, you know, or what? What have you seen so far? Yeah, I think I think a hybrid model like you're describing is what makes the most sense. It's hard, it's hard to put in place because it relies on you saying there's going to be important decisions and they're going to be day-to-day -day mundane decisions, and just this making sure that we're all agreeing on what is mundane and what is very important is already something that should be, you know, part of a constitution or a referendum or, or something like this. In general, like,
What I, and I think this kind of comes back to why DAOs, I think, have a very strong chance of disrupting the way organizations around the world work is because with DAOs, everything's in the open. It's in the code. The code will decide whether, you know, uh, uh, you know giving away less than $10,000, you need two multi-six signers. Giving away more than $10,000, you need a third one, and the third one is actually controlled by an oracle linked to a, snap, uh, to a snapshot vote. There's, uh, if you want to cheat, there's no way. There's no gray area with code. And I think that's a very important strength of DAOs. It's, you can check the code. You can see exactly what is the, you know, what's the extent of the executive powers uh, uh, of the delegates you've elected and what is still to be left to, uh, you know, to, to, to your community. And I think it's an issue that comes up more and more. I hear about it all the time these days with, all, uh, with everything going on with the pandemic. You hear so much about all governments overstepping their, you know, what they should be able to do or whatever. But the thing is, we wouldn't have arrived to this situation if everything was very clear on what is the extent of the powers of the executive branch of your government and what is outside of it. You know, uh, a lockdown. It, it, should a government be able to restrict the movement of their citizen? It's unclear in many constitutions or in many or in many states. But it is a right that the government has decided to to use. And if this was in a smart contract, it would be very clear what the government can and can't, uh, you know, decide. And so, in the same sense. You know, when we were joking about ENS fl uh, publicly flaying uh, uh, name squatters, if they, if it is clear in the smart contract that this is something they can do, they can take back certain names based on popular votes. Well, they can, and if they can't, it's impossible to do so. Mm. Yeah. So we shouldn't forget that there is a the ultimate kind of like tool, which is just using code or smart contracts to enforce what is even possible. And then around exactly. the humans to, to define like what are the values that inform that immutable set of interactions. And then like delegate some people to then like fill in the gaps of like what the code does not cover. Yeah. So in, in a way, yeah, it, it kind of like feels like the most important parts the constitution uh, should be in smart contract or in code. And then the how do you define the constitution? Everybody should be involved because that is the most critical decision. And then to maintain it or to keep it relevant, to add the context, uh, to keep it operating, that's when it might make sense to delegate, right? So that uh, you know that those people can then keep it going uh, while you to make sure the whole thing uh, still aligns with like why the DAO is there in the first place. Well, I think we're, we're coming to, to uh, like a, quite a clear picture of like a, maybe the ideal DAO, but we you know, don't want to claim that, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy because so, so it depends on, on what you think the ideal DAO should be. But I think you're absolutely right. Like, for example, there's a lot of people, you know, if you do consider uh, Bitcoin as a DAO, there's a lot of people who will say the Bitcoin code should never be touched. Like, th this is an important part of the value proposition of Bitcoin, that the core code of Bitcoin should never be changed in any way. And there's people who are saying, oh, but actually, if proof of stake makes sense, maybe maybe we should move to proof of stake. Or maybe actually halving emissions doesn't work as well on the long run. So what if we run into a problem? We should maybe change this. And 
the more time passes and the more these disputes will be important and will have to be resolved in one way or another by by the Bitcoin community. And if they decide to go with delegates to represent their voting power, it could be a, a, a right way of doing it because the debate is clear. You'd go for a delegate that says, we'll not touch it, and you can go for a delegate that says, we'll change it. As long as it's very clear what the delegate stands for and what his or her opinions are, I think it makes a lot of sense to go for this kind of system with delegation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I love this to uh, come back to like the Bitcoin example, right? Because uh, like that is the prime example of like, it's already done, it's immutable, you're never going to change it. So it's as if that, like, you know, when the Constitution was written, whatever context and, and decisions they made that was perfect, or you treat it as perfect, like you follow the letter of the law in a way, rather than the spirit uh, of the law, the Constitution, right? Because maybe it was written in that way so that, you know, you wouldn't lose power to a certain group, for example, right? Or, or so that you protect certain rights that should be maintained forever. But there's some things that should still be refreshed, right? And, you know, if it's completely immutable, then it's impossible. So, I, I don't know, right? I guess uh, we need to have the experiments to see, right? Um, things that don't change and things that change all the time too much, too little. Uh, and that's, that's the beauty of the DAO space, right? That all these experiments are possible. Um, I'd like to still, um, I know we've talked about many examples. Uh, is there one you still like to highlight that has shown some sort of breakthrough uh, that was not possible or not done before uh, in the previous uh, real world, be it in like, you know, uh, corporates or in governments and like grassroots organizations. Have you seen any form of coordination that was, that's actually uh, a disruptive innovation so far? Well, it's, it's an interesting question because, uh, you know, this is really pinpointing one project in particular. So, uh, I, I'd just like to start this answer by stressing out that this is my opinion and this uh, this doesn't represent Snapshot as a whole, it's just, it's just me, but I, I think, you know, then there's one that springs to mind first, so I guess I, I'm going to go with this. Um, I don't know if you've heard of KlimaDAO on Polygon. So yeah, basically it's using the own model to lock up carbon credits. And you, I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not part of the project. I'm, I, I'm not involved in the project. But I just think the idea is amazing. The idea of using these kind of tools, because it's really, I think at the very beginning, I was kind of saying that for me, DAOs are a toolbox and, and tokens are part of the DAO toolbox and Gross is safe is part of the DAO toolbox. And all of, all of these can be used to make your organization more transparent or, or, or more decentralized. Uh, well, I think that KlimaDAO is an example of if they weren't using the DAO toolbox, this would be just a carbon offset project like many others. And here they managed to reach incredible, you know, tons and tons. I, I don't want to say a number because I, I'm not sure myself, but tons and tons of, uh, of carbon that they managed to lock in forever if my, if my understanding of the protocol is correct just through the mechanisms uh, uh, that, that, you know, many other uh, projects use. And why I love this example is just this idea that carbon offsets uh, programs, organizations, uh, this, is uh, this is nothing new. There, there's many other organizations that do things like that. And it's 
it's incredible that many other organizations do things like that, but using these tools makes the entire operation more transparent, more decentralized. And as we've, as we've seen with the, with the, with just the, the, the success of this project, extremely efficient. And I think this is something that still, uh, a lot of people doubt. Is it going to be efficient? Is it going to be really, you know, exactly what it says it's going to be in a way, you know, uh, is this going to be fast enough? Is, is it going to be adaptive enough? Well, yes, the answer was yes. All right, all right. That is certainly a future we look forward to. And I think for me as well, uh, Climadown is extremely exciting. Uh, uh, I was there at the, the kind of like initial launch, right, contributing to the carbon. And I think it fits oh, very so. well into one of the ideas I've been thinking for some time, which is around like to join a DAO, you need some sort of like proof of work, right? And, and the mm -hmm. proof of work is enshrined in the constitution, right? In, in Bitcoin's case, it's providing computation power or like a calculation power. Like in Climadao's case, your initial proof is by contributing to carbon capture, like be it in actually locking it up yourself or contributing to the demand of capturing carbon. And that means that just by you participating in a DAO or having ownership in a DAO, you already have contributed to the cause or the mission or the constitution of why it exists in the first place, right? So no, absolutely. And then, and then you have this explosion of talent and potential that comes from like-minded people feeling this kind of power of community in a way that just isn't really possible without breaking, you know, the, the boundaries of, uh, of the physical world. You know, if you've been in a, in a discord at the, at, you know, at, at the cusp of something incredible happening like this, you, you see what I mean. It's just this idea of, you know, so much potential that could come from anywhere and, and everyone bringing 100% of their skills and they're not, you know, oh, I'm going to hire this person to design the UI of my website. No, this person is going to be part of my organization and I'm going to let this person exert his or her potential in any way that makes sense uh, and, and that uh, makes him or her feel part and happy and, and contributing to the DAO. And, and I think that's just an incredible and a, a very understated uh, mechanism that makes me very bullish on DAOs, obviously. <laughs> All right. So speaking of bullish, it's time to move on to the future. So any kind of bold predictions you'd like to make for DAOs in 2022? I think we, we kind of like already made a little prediction, although it means I think that 2022 is year of the DAO. But what does that mean to you, right? Do you agree? What do you see happening? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, 2022, year of the DAOs. Um, well, DAOs are organizations. So it's about each and every one of us to make this the year of DAOs. It's not just going to happen like this. We, we have to work harder there for, you know, I, I think, you know, if 2020 was the year of DeFi and 21 year of NFTs, uh, you know, these are highly speculative things, you know, when DAOs are very, they're, they're human. There's no real way to speculate on a DAO. Well, yeah, you can buy the, the DAOs token and hope that they're, that their that their explosion of uh, of talent and potential will happen, but it's you know I think it's a uh, it, it, I would say 2022 is the year where the world discovers that by doing things decentralized we actually don't lose anything 
everyone is happier and and we work better together. And, and so in that sense, yeah, year of DevOps, let's go. Nice, nice, let's go. Uh, I'm not sure whether this like, throws a wrench into it. I think for a long time we were talking about like uh, community DAOs, right? People that, uh, that follow certain personalities or brands. And well, this uh, just recently we've seen the rise of what we call the simp uh, NFT DAOs around certain figures. <laughs> and, well, they call themselves DAOs, right? And in, in fact, it is because it started from grassroots movements, just like fans who, of a particular brand or person and or influencer who just come together and celebrate that. So, uh, you know, does that feed into the narrative or the predictions uh, that, or does it change any of the expectations here? What's your quick take? Yeah, well, so I'm a big fan of, the, of this really famous essay called The Thousand True Fans. And it's just kind of this idea that the internet was going to bring a model where if you had a thousand true fans, you'd be able to live off of what you love. And you know, you're, you're, making, uh, you're making a weird style of music that only a thousand people in the world like. Well, they're going to find you. They're all going to be able to give you $2 a month and you're going to be able to live off of that. And this kind of dream, because this essay is like 2002, 2003, I think. Uh, and this kind of dream didn't materialize. They're just, you know, if you're on Spotify, you're being paid 0.3 cents per per play. I think it's something like this. So, you know, even uh, my, my most successful musical-minded friends would not be able to, to live off of Spotify. So cre we need to find a way to better manage the creators of humanity, whether they're sculptors, artists, musicians, or, you know, synth masters. It, it's not our place to judge. You know, it's not our place to judge what, what, what is creating, what, what is not creating. It's our place to create a system where people can be, you know, rewarded for doing what they love. And this is a, a super important concept. And I think it might even be the most important thing that crypto does if we manage to get this right, because the nature of work is changing incredibly fast and automatization is making, you know, many jobs redundant. So how are we going to keep, you know, having systems where people feel like they're contributing to the world in meaningful ways in very often more meaningful ways than they used to. And I think, this system will happen when we have some kind of better distribution mechanism and, and better, um, you know, ways to pay these people to do what they love and to create the music that they love and, and, and post pictures on Instagram. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. A few spicy questions then to close it up then. Uh, so are you part of Irene Dow? <laughs> <laughs> no, I am not part of uh, Irene Dow, sadly. Right. Okay, but you're open. It's way too expensive for me. <laughs> all right. All right. Pricing people out already. That's how popular it is, I guess, right now. Uh, another spicy question then uh, for snapshot. What are the plans? I think a lot of people. I think Fabian kind of teased like, oh, could we tokenize communities? Could we have the true fans of a snapshot stand up and, and form a DAO, like form a SIP DAO for for a snapshot for yourself? Who knows? <laughs> or will this become a public good? All right. What do we see here in twenty twenty two for snapshot? Yeah. Well, so Snapchat is a public good and it wants to stay one. So what that means is the, the, um, you know, the success of DAOs is linked 
in some small part to the success of Snapshot. If Snapshot does a good job, then it will help the it will help DAOs better organize. But in a much more significant way, the success of DAOs is linked to the success of Snapshot. Or, or uh, no, the opposite. The success of Snapshot is linked to the success uh, success of DAOs. We've seen an, uh, just an explosion of new spaces and new communities coming on Snapshot, and I'd like to say that this week is Snapshot is, is is an incredible product. Maybe it is, but the truth is it's also because there's an incredible movement rallying up behind DAOs at the moment, an incredible force behind it. Uh, and and you know, in that sense, Snapshot has to kind of be capable of handling all, all of that traffic and making sure that the product is is the best it can be to power that growth and, and power this uh, this kind of uh, potential. So in terms of revenue, that means no revenue. If you start making people pay for snapshots, then you're not pouring and, and you're not letting that explosion uh, uh, of potential happen. You're, you're basically saying, Finally, we have loads of users. This is the moment we monetize. And this is how you stop a trend from exploding, you know? So in terms of revenue, the answer is no. We want to stay a public good, and Snapshot wants to stay a public good. In terms of token, that's a whole different story, I think. I think tokens are an incredible, you know, coordination mechanism. And eventually, Snapshot is the community. Snapshot is the Snapshot community. There has to be no difference between those two concepts for Snapshot to really have achieved its potential. And in that sense, well, the best way of kind of governing that community would be a token. Now, I'm not going to tell you that it's in the plans, that it's coming in the next six months. I don't know if it's coming this year, but I wouldn't exclude it. I, I definitely wouldn't exclude it because it's one of the tools that make DAOs very, very powerful. And it's one of the tools that might really align the interest of both the communities on Snapshot, the users that vote in these communities, uh, you know, the, the, the Snapshot development team, which is important to keep well incentivized to continue the growth of Snapshot, and, and all of these things. So I don't think uh, a token is out of the question, uh, certainly not, actually. I think it's very much when, you know, the Snapshot team figures out how a, a token can really help support and you know safeguard the integrity of snapshots in a way that really makes sense then we'll go for it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or nfts who knows right as says uh well, nfts this is actually yeah. like stay tuned we love this idea so <laughs> absolutely yeah. Yeah. and well in the spirit of uh DAOs and you know open uh collaboration if you have any ideas right i'm sure Nathan, you're open to hearing thoughts around like, should, should Snapshot have a token? When, how, what kind of mechanisms, right? What should we incentivize, right? For sure, for sure. We're really hope, open to that discussion. We, we love to, like, Snapshot itself is kind of doing its best to blur the line between the contributors to Snapshot and, and the team, you know, and, and eventually I think, and this I think is a question of months, there will really be nothing hidden. You know, you can already see everything that the team is working on on GitHub. You can access everything and, and participate. There's even bounties for contributors and everything. Uh, but eventually, all of these discussions, they will happen in the open because, because it has to. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I think we're certainly looking forward to that. And to really, really wrap it up now, 
any final shout outs you'd like to to make you know or any tips for new DAOs anything you'd like to share a final word uh well i think the shout out is for anyone who is you know considering strongly to move into web3 and and kind of come build with us the the cool stuff that's going to revolutionize the world so do it quit your job go full web3 go full web3 awesome i love that and uh, just finally how do we get in touch with either yourself or with snapshot oh you can uh, look on twitter for the for for snapshot just type snapshot and then if you really want to talk with, with everyone and have uh, you know take part in more active discussions that uh, what twitter can really bring there's the discord link right there the discord is open to anyone so come and chat with us uh, Right. Yes, everyone, let's join the conversations and make the year of the DAO happen. Thank you so much again, Nathan, for coming with us and like, contributing to this incredible conversation today. Uh, it's been so insightful. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, really. Thank you. Thank you so much for animating. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was really a, a very, very interesting conversation. All right. And to everyone tuning in, thank you as well. And I hope you have uh, taken something away. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.